We've been tracking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark from his opening line. Let's read together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And today, as we've read the scripture in Mark, we see that the kingdom of God is coming closer again in a new way. And as we read through uh, the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John, we find again the kingdom of God coming closer and closer. And Jesus explains things and makes things clearer to him to the point where his disciples say, ah, now you're no longer speaking in riddles. Now we understand what you're saying. Jesus explains what his kingdom is like by saying us what kind of a king he is. And so we read, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the servant king shows us what kind of a kingdom it is. As we read in the Gospel of John on that last night, he takes off his cloak, he wraps a towel around him, he gets down and he washes the dirty filthy feet of his disciples, including Judas. And he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you should wash one another's feet. In these last chapters of Mark, we've had the events of Holy Week, the last seven days before the crucifixion, And now we come to the last day, the last 24 hours. Everything recorded in Mark chapter 14 and 15 are this last day of Jesus' life. And then the surprise of chapter 16. Let's read the passage together and talk a little bit about it as we go through. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened, Festival Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. The Passover is the biggest event of the Jewish religious calendar, celebrating their ancestors' rescue from slavery by the power of God. Moses and the ten plagues and the Red Sea and all of that good stuff. God rescues his people. And at Passover, the people remember all the events of the Exodus by eating a special meal packed with symbolism, eating a special meal in a particular way with prayers and songs. Jesus will take this religious meal and he will change its symbolism, give it new meaning by making a few statements that insert himself into that ancient story. Jesus has followers in the city that aren't a part of this official group, and somehow one of them has set aside a room for this event. Jesus is still operating in secret mode, as we discussed a few weeks back. He's not quite ready to be arrested. So even the location of the Passover meal is kept hidden until the last minute. The sign is to find a man carrying a water jar, something 
out of the ordinary in those days, a lowly task. But here is a follower of Jesus serving his household by doing what is necessary in humility. All is arranged, all is ready, and the meal begins. We often call this meal the Last Supper, but those words are not in the biblical text. That's a later name that we have given this event. Certainly Jesus ate with the disciples after the resurrection. They had other suppers. And this is not really a supper. This is a Passover meal, a feast almost, with roast lamb and specially prepared bread and wine and a variety of other things to symbolize the events of the Exodus. It will be the last supper for one of the group, but not Jesus. This will be the last time that Judas eats with these people. We read on. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus is fully aware of what is going to happen. He knows that one of his companions will betray him and hand him over to the religious leaders. He's been prophesying that throughout the gospel. We've seen it four times in Mark's gospel to this point. He knows what's going to happen. And there are Old Testament prophecies that point to this as well. In Psalm 41.9, David gives a clue to this when he writes, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who I shared my bread, has turned against me. Woe to that man, Jesus says. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. This is said of Judas. It's a phrase similar to that used by Jesus in Mark chapter 9. If you can cast your mind back to our message about hell, about Gehenna, the place the wicked go to be utterly destroyed after judgment. There Jesus says it's better to enter life crippled or with one eye or maimed than to go to Gehenna with your body fully intact. Here the warning is even harsher. You'd be better off never having been born never to have existed than to betray the Son of Man in this way. We are not given specifics about what this means, just that there is a terrible fate awaiting the traitor. And even having heard this warning, Judas goes ahead with his plan. John's Gospel tells us a lot more about what happened at this meal, the things Jesus said and did washing their feet, speaking about the Holy Spirit who was to come after he'd left. He gave promises about what happens after death for those who trust and believe in Jesus. And in those upper room discourse, he says some of his most famous words, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The other Gospels don't give us all of that teaching and that example. But John leaves out something that the rest do say. 
the words Jesus used eating the Passover meal change its significance forever. So we read on in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. These words will be so familiar to many of us who are regularly in church. In some congregations, they'll read this or a similar passage each and every week as they take communion. So it's interesting to see what is missing from Mark's version and Matthew's version, which are identical. What is missing from that passage in your mind? Who spots something that's missing? Words you expect to be there but are not. See, normally you ask me questions and you're not used to it the other way around. What's missing is the done in remembrance bits. Jesus says, this is my blood, this is my body. He doesn't say, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say it in Mark's version. He doesn't say it in Matthew's version. Only in Luke's version of this story is the done in remembrance bit. It's only in Luke's gospel and only said by Jesus after breaking the bread. So we have four gospels telling about this event, telling about this final meal together. One of them, John, doesn't talk about it at all. He just mentions in passing the meal was being prepared. Matthew and Mark both tell the story just as we read it this morning, without the do it in remembrance of me. Only Luke includes the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, and only once. And yet, this ceremony, this activity, this thing that we call communion and others call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, has become so prominent in the church that wars have been fought. And people have been burned at the stake as heretics because they disagreed with how someone else was performing this ceremony. It boggles the imagination. But that's what's happened in history. The passage that is read in almost every church when communion occurs does not come from the Gospels. It comes from the only other place in the Bible where this ceremony, this event, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul, when he's telling this story and telling about what Jesus has told him to tell the church, is happening in a way that's a thousand miles away from what we did together this morning. 
Because when Paul tells this story, he's doing it in the context of a meal. Because Paul criticizes the Corinthian church for saying, some people are coming to the Lord's table and eating so much that other people are missing out. He says, don't you have homes to eat food in? You shouldn't come to the church to to gorge yourself. And he says, the rich people are getting all the good stuff and the poor people are being left out. He's talking about a fellowship meal where the church gathers to eat a feast together, not a cube of bread or a wafer with a thimble of juice or wine. I'm in a strange place with this one because the ceremony of the bread and the juice was never part of my Christian life until I came here. In my 40 years of growing up in the church and becoming a Christian and being a pastor, I've taken part in communion probably five times in my life. And then I've come here and I've done it every month since I came here. I don't get it. I'll admit that. I don't get it. It doesn't move me. It doesn't excite me. It doesn't speak to me and deepen my soul. And I also realize that I'm in the minority there. Most people, many people find communion to be a powerful and spiritual reality that encourages and refreshes and deepens their commitment to Jesus. There are commentators and scholars who I love and respect and agree with 100%. And then I read what they say about communion And I go, really? Wow, I don't get it. I'm like that with N.T. Wright, if you've ever read any of his great books. I agree with him so much, and I agree with him every step of the way, and then he starts talking about communion and the mysteries and the wonder of the whole thing, and I go, I don't get this at all. (laughs) This is not part of my spirituality. And guess what? That's okay. All right? It would be a terrible world if we were all identical. And the church would be poorer if we all looked and thought and acted the same. We don't all like to sing. And those of us who do like to sing certainly don't like to sing the same songs. But as we gather together as a church, we sing because it's good for some of us, if not most of us. And those of us who don't like to sing, well, thank you for bearing with us and God bless you. Maybe you'll get something out of the words or maybe it's just a chance for you to sit and I don't know what you do. And when we're singing songs that I don't particularly like, well, you know what? I still sing loudly because it's not for me. It might be for the young teenager at the other end of the aisle who loves that song or for the old granny in the back row who loves that old hymn. We are a church, a body together, a family together. And so we sing each other's songs, even if they don't appeal specifically to me. Some people can't stand long prayers and times of meditation. They're bored to tears. But others absolutely love the prayer time. They find it indispensable. Guess what? As a family... We're going to do things that sometimes you don't always like, but it's good for someone in the family. And some people can't stand long sermons. They've all left the church at this point. Uh, Some people can't stand long sermons. And others think that anything under 40 minutes is a wasted opportunity. Some folks like to preach narratives, acting as a biblical character. 
Others like to go through a passage verse by verse and explain what the text means. And still others like to preach on a topic, drawing together verses from everywhere and mashing them together to make a point. And that's okay. Diversity is a strength of the church. And we need to be free to ask questions and have conversations and disagreements and discussions and respect and, dare I say it, love one another. If we were all the same, we wouldn't need love. But because we're different, we need a whole lot of love. And so when someone in the church claims that because of their mystical powers and the special blessing of God, then a piece of bread actually becomes the literal body of Jesus Christ and a cup of wine actually becomes the actual literal blood of Jesus Christ, then other people should be free to raise a hand and say, I don't think that's quite right without living in fear of violence and warfare. But historically that has not been the case. We just passed Reformation Day on the 31st of October 1517 when a German Catholic priest decided to ask some questions about things that were going on in the Catholic Church And the Catholic Church ended up splintering into two camps, into thousands of denominations, because some some men were more in love with power and wealth than they were in love with Jesus and his way. All of which is to say, let's read the Bible. Let's listen to what Jesus says. And let's try to love people even when we end up disagreeing with them which we absolutely will. Are there any questions this morning? Any questions about anything I've said or anything we've read today? I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Normally when I say something outrageous, people ask me questions about it. Yes. Why did Judas betray Jesus and not someone else from the disciples? Here's what I think. I think it could have been any one of those 12. I think it could have been. I don't have a view of God that everything is absolutely prescribed to the minuteness detail in that way. I think, yeah, it could have been any of them. Why Judas? The Bible doesn't really tell us. John gives us some hints that he was greedy for money. We had this conversation last time I preached about this um, because there's the Judas, the Jesus, Jesus Christ superstar version, which is where Judas is trying to push Jesus to claim the kingdom. I don't think that's in the text. I think Judas just decided, you know what, I can get some money out of this and I'm sick of this Jesus and I'm sick of what he's been doing and let's get rid of him. That's what I think. But I'm convinced that it could have been any of the 12. Because people make decisions. Yes, down here. Sorry, I can't hear you. Jesus or Judas? I think Judas. Maybe Judas was afraid that he, when, G, when things went pear-shaped, he'd be nailed to a cross next to Jesus and decided to get out that way. I don't know. We're not told. 
We will find out one day. We can ask about the motivations of these characters when we get to heaven. But the scripture doesn't give us enough detail. Anything we would say about it is mere speculation. We're just told he went and did it. Any other questions? No. So I was, I think he was confused. Yes. So Noel's suggesting that he was confused, that he had two voices in his ears, one of Satan and one of Jesus, and he chose to follow Satan's voice. That's a possibility. Again, we don't know. And that's a very high view of Judas. Well done on you, Noel, for having such a high opinion of Judas. Other people in the church have had an opinion of Judas from the very beginning that he was always going to be that wicked one. He was the one predestined from eternity past to be that wicked, thoroughly cruel man. Uh, And so I don't know. We'll find out one day. We'll find out one day. Someone had to do it. Someone had to bring the guards to him. Was there another question, Voida? I saw you tentatively raise your hand. Yes, diversity? Okay. Um, so good. Thank you for that question. That's unrelated to the scripture. I won't talk about it. No. Um, so I mentioned, so Verita's saying about diversity, and we, yes, diversity is a strength of the church. And then the question is about does diversity extend beyond race and culture? Does it extend to uh, sexual orientation and things like that? Okay. Um, so what is the position of the church? So here in the Wesleyan Methodist Church, we are a conservative evangelical church. Our position is that the only proper sexual relationships that occur occur between men and women, one man, one woman, for life. That is our position. Okay. Other Methodist denominations and other extremes, like in America, have gone off in very strange directions, and we don't, we are not going that way. So yes, we're pro diversity. Now, what I'll say to you is, um, how do I say this without being burnt like a heretic? The sin of a person who engages in a homosexual activity is no worse than the sin of a heterosexual person who engages in sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. And in fact, the sin of a homosexual person engaging in that sexual activity is no worse than my sin when I lie to my wife or when I scold my children unfairly or when I gossip about you behind your backs. In God's eyes, all of those sins are sin. And he wants us all to repent and believe. Yes? Having said that, as a church, we say there are certain kinds of relationships that are ongoing that are not in God's way of wanting them to be, and they're not good. They're harmful. They're not good for the people engaged in them, and they should stop, repent, change, be renewed. Does that answer your question? Good. Okay. Thank you for putting me on a really tough spot there. Hans, what are you... Absolutely. Yes. 
So Hans is pointing out, yes, we love the sinner and hate the sin. Yes. So my question, if someone came in, so oh, well, let's change topic entirely. No, let's not. Let's get there. Have we got time? Yeah, we've got time. There are certain churches where if you come for communion, the priest will look at you as you come down the aisle and say, not you, not you, not you. Either you're not part of our church, you're not properly baptized, or you're not of our denomination or whatever, or you're wearing a rainbow pat badge on your shirt saying you're homosexual and so you can't have communion. Now, that's not our position here in the Wesleyan Methodist Church. Our position is that anyone who wants to take communion is welcome to because it's a sign that you want to come closer to God and that you're, you're either repenting of your sins or you're wanting to grow in your faith. So if someone comes in here in the most outrageous costume you can imagine, let's imagine we've got coming down this aisle someone with a rainbow flag saying that they're homosexual, and on this side we've got someone coming down with a swastika saying they're a Nazi. They're free to take communion because it's between them and God what's going on in their heart. It's not up to me to judge what's going on inside that person and how they stand with God. Does that make sense? That might be too far beyond what the position of the Wesley Methodist Church is. That's my position. My position is the children are welcome to take part in communion even if they haven't made that commitment to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour because they're part of our family and we love them. And we want them to grow up to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So my little girl who can barely speak, she can say yes and no and and dog. She takes communion with the rest of my family, not because I think it has some mystical and magical power that will save her, but because I want her to feel that this is her place where she belongs with the rest of us. And when she grows up and she can make an adult decision for herself, Maybe the bread, maybe she won't have my problem. Maybe the bread and the juice will be special and powerful and meaningful for her because she's been doing it her whole life. Does that make sense? All right. I think we're running out of time for questions. I remind you, if you have questions, my email address is there. My phone number is there. Please get in touch with me for questions. I'm visiting people at the moment, so I'm making my way through the L's and the M's and the N's. So if you're an L, an M, or an N, I'm going to be making a time to visit with you. Let's get back to Mark chapter 14. Jesus is eating a Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover meal is packed with symbolism and meaning, questions and answers. And at key points in this Passover meal, as they go through the ritual and the liturgy and pray the prayers and sing the hymns, Jesus says, this is all about me. And so at key points, Jesus takes the bread like a Jewish father would do and break the bed and bread and hand it out and do the liturgy as, the, as the, the, the senior man in the house would do for his friends. Jesus, as the rabbi, breaks the bread, but instead of saying the liturgy or reciting the appropriate prayer or reading the scripture, Jesus says, this bread is my body. And what we're doing today means something different. And when it comes to drink the wine and say the prayer that goes with that, Jesus says, This is now my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. I want to encourage everyone to be a part of a Christian Passover meal, to find some Jewish Christians and go through the liturgy and the prayers and the hymns and see where Jesus puts his words, his additions, his revelation about what this all means. Perhaps we could do that together as a church as we come to Easter next year. Let me know if you'd be interested in doing that. 
Jesus is embedding himself and his story in the ancient story of the Jewish people. They were slaves in Egypt with no hope, no freedom, no joy. But then God turned up and did some amazing things and suddenly these slaves were a nation. They were free. They were made new. And Jesus says, this story is all about me. Jesus says that we are all slaves, slaves to selfishness and sin and to the fear of death. But then God shows up in the person of Jesus to pay the ransom and to set us free. And now we don't have to live in the fear of death and selfishness and sin. We can be made new and live lives of meaning and service and hope and joy and love because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. My communion hymn is this one. Because even though my tradition doesn't break bread and drink wine and that was something strange to me, we still talked about it. We talked about the fact that it was us who were called to be Christ's broken bread and his outpoured wine. We have a role to play. And so we'd sing this morning, my life must be Christ's broken bread. My love, his outpoured wine, a cup all filled, a table spread beneath his name and sign that other souls refreshed and fed may share his life through mine. The only communion your neighbours, your family, your unchurched community will see or take part in is your life. You need to be Christ's broken bread. Your love must be his outpoured wine that others can come and know Jesus. We want people to meet Jesus in our own feeble attempts to show him to the world. We pray that others would see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father God, this morning I thank you for Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Father God, I thank you that we can trust in his shed blood in his broken body, for our forgiveness, for our acceptance, for our ransom. Father God, I thank you that you are not so concerned with how we enact communion or any other sacrament or any other practice. You're not concerned about the punctuation and the spelling. You're concerned about the condition of our hearts. Father God, this morning I pray that you would look on our hearts and remove anything that is not suitable, anything that's offensive to you, that you would burn those bits out of us and redeem us and restore us and use us. Father God, we would share Jesus with our friends and neighbours and community. Help us to be his broken bread. Help us to be his outpoured wine. Father God, I pray this morning if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ in a real and personal way and is instead trusting in some kind of works or religious ritual, Father God, I pray that you would wake them up, that you would speak to their heart, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and faith and that they would trust only in the shed blood of Jesus and what he has done, who he is. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus.
the one who gave his life for us. Amen.